The second century theologian, Hippolytus, wrote an incredibly helpful book for the early church and for us that study the early church called On the Apostolic Tradition. On the Apostolic Tradition is incredibly important because it lays out the liturgies of the early church, early church practices that have come down through the ages to today. Now, the section of the book that often we we know the most about and often is the most interesting is the baptismal ceremonies that occurred on Easter Sunday every year. Remember, this is the second century. For about a year, if you wanted to be baptized, you had to go through a catechism course, but it was a lot more than a catechism course. It was to swear your allegiance to Christ and to him alone. Because many of these people who would be baptized very well were going to be martyred in the Roman Empire. So this was not a small event. This was not a small commitment. At dawn on Easter Sunday, these people that were to be baptized would be brought to a pool of water. They would be stripped naked and they would be asked a question. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? And they would respond, I believe. And they'd be dunked. Then the minute they came up, they would be asked, do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and Mary the Virgin and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was dead and buried and rose the third day alive from the dead and ascended in the heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead? And the person would then respond, I believe. And they'd be baptized under the water again. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? And they would be dunked one final time. And then this time when they would emerge, they would be dripped, doused from head to toe in oil. They would be clothed. And then they would go into the assembly of God to participate in their first Eucharist service on Easter Sunday. Now, if you haven't already noticed, the baptismal rite, the the words that they would proclaim to swear allegiance to Christ are the words of the Apostles' Creed, the earliest forms of the Apostles' Creed. This is the very first creed that the church had that we know of, other than certain passages in the Bible, which very clearly appear to be early forms of creeds. The Apostles' Creed was not written by the apostles, but was seen as the earliest form of the summation of the teaching of the apostles. The big picture narrative of scripture that you have to believe in order to be rightly called a Christian. Now, some of you know we've been preaching through a sermon series in our church called The Shape of the Liturgy. How the liturgy is shaped and how the liturgy shapes us. Because many of us weren't raised in liturgical traditions. So all of these movements that you have been seeing, if they're confusing to you, we'll just go back in the series. You can find all of it. We explain all of it. But now we're actually looking ahead. So if this is your very first time, right after the sermon, every week we proclaim one of two creeds together. We either say the Apostles' Creed, and we often say that because it's the only universally agreed upon creed, and it's nice and short because we start late, because of you all. I'm going to get a church bell, by the way, guys. I'm going to get a bell. I'm going to put it in the the breezeway, and I'm just going to ring you into church. Get in here. We start late, and also, it's, it's a beautiful creed. It's a beautiful summation of what we believe. But we also, and the normative option in the Anglican church is to proclaim the Nicene Creed. 
Now, the Nicene Creed has this little complication called the filioque clause, which we say the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but there was a break in the early church, actually the biggest break in the history of church, even greater than the Protestant Reformation, because the East only says from the Father, and the West says from the Father and the Son. So each week we either say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And as we preach through the liturgy of our church, today I would like to look particularly at why we say the creeds each and every week. Because I know that many of you maybe were raised in a tradition that had no creed but the Bible, right? You ever heard that phrase? That's kind of a silly phrase because that actually is a creed, right? And that's not in the Bible. Uh, But we say the creeds every week because, uh, and I want to just talk about three things. I can't get into the content of the creeds because maybe that's, that's like an entire sermon series. Maybe we'll do that one day. But I want to look at three reasons why we say the creeds. First, we say the creeds every week because the creeds remind us of the centrality of belief. We say, I believe each and every week. Second, we need the creeds because we need the big picture of the Bible. So often, maybe, you know, from Sunday school as children, we knew all the stories, but we had no clue how they fit together. The creed gives us a simple way in which the scriptures can be understood from beginning to end. And then third, and this one's significant, the creeds unite. The creeds unite across denominations. The creeds unite across nationalities and ethnicities. And the creeds unite us across time. These words have been proclaimed since the second century of the faith in an uninterrupted way all the way up to now. Yes, we are Anglicans that have been around 500 years, but first we are creedal Christians that have been around since the time of Christ. So I thought it would be fitting because many of us, this is our first week here, I thought it'd be fitting for us to first stand together and recite the words of the Apostles' Creed as a fitting way to start this sermon. So Gavin, pop the Apostles' Creed up there for me, would you? Stand with me. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Now, how does every clause of the Apostles' Creed begin? We believe. We believe. We as Christians affirm the centrality of belief. Most notably because it's all over the teachings of Christ. John 3, 16, the passage that we all know so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
Or John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to, into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Or in our passage today in Romans chapter 10, the centrality of belief for salvation. All over the scriptures, salvation is linked to belief. Now, that's often hard for us to understand because the English word belief is somewhat of a weak word, isn't it? You often use the word believe for something that's a mere opinion, right? I believe that Jurgen Klopp is the best manager in Premier League football because he's the manager of Liverpool Soccer Club. You might say, well, that's just your belief, but I don't really care what you think. And I would say, yeah, I know. It's just my personal belief, my personal belief. However, in the Greek, the word believe actually has the same stem word as faith, which means to trust in, to place your confidence in, to place your hopes in. You know, we often use the word believe today for something you don't have a whole lot of skin in the game with, something that if it turns out to be wrong, you don't lose much. However, in the Greek, to believe is to put your trust in something that matters utterly. You know, here's an example that might help you understand what that active understanding of belief is in the Greek, which is the language that the New Testament is written in. Some of you know my son, Miles, and I like to fly fish. I've been fly fishing with Miles since he could hold his head up. First, he started in the front pouch carrier, then I moved him to the backpack, and then even when he was real tiny and he had like, you know, the duck walk, the bowed legs, and he'd, be, he'd come out and fishing with me, right? And he, you know, wanted to be a fisherman. So often when you're fly fishing and you're dry fly fishing for rising trout, which is the only real way to fish, <laughs> you, have to, you have to transition to different sides of the creek or the creek from where I come from just to have a good angle on the fish. So a lot of times you have to cross the creek. And my son, you know, with his little legs, he'd be that deep and it'd be up to his waist and he'd be wading through, but he'd hold on to my hand. And at some time in his life, he could maybe, maybe grip two of my fingers, right? And he would be gripping on as tightly as he could, trusting that I was going to hold him up. That's the image of faith in the scriptures, to cling to God, to cling to the message of salvation in Christ alone, believing that when the current gets strong, his hand will stay there. This is why we believe in Jesus Christ, placing our trust that we can't make ourselves right with God by our works. We aren't going to do it. In order to be made right with God, what do you have to be? You have to be utterly holy, completely holy, and none of us are. So what do we do? We cling to the holiness of Christ. We cling to the righteousness of Christ. We cling to his death so that we are brought through the grave with him and resurrected into new life with the Father. But what did my son not fully understand? From his vantage point, he was clinging to my hand. But when the waters got rough, when the current got fast, I didn't just say, Miles, hold on tighter. What did I say? What did I do? I held on to him. And there were points even to this day when we go fishing together that I just have to forsake his hand and grip him right by the wrist because the water's moving so fast. And each week when we stand together and we proclaim, we believe, we also recognize that our belief is weak and frail. 
Just like the man who, who uh, in the scriptures who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Week in and week out, we come with frail belief, weak belief, like a child gripping onto our father's hand. But who do we believe in? We believe in the God who promises to hold on to us. The God who created us. The first clause of the Apostles' Creed. The God who chose to redeem us by his son. The second clause of the Apostles' Creed. And the God who chose to bring us into new life by the power of his spirit. Bringing us into the redeemed community. The third clause of the Apostles' Creed. We place our trust in the one who is utterly trustworthy. The God who has chosen to covenant with us and never forsake us. And each week when we come together to recite the creed right after the sermon as a fitting response where God by a prophet speaks to you and then you stand and say, Lord, I believe. But what so often happens to us in this life? We struggle with belief, don't we? We go through the trials of life, the current feels strong, and we feel like our grip is not strong enough to hold us in life with God, and yet we recognize it isn't. And so we set our belief, we set our hope, we set our trust with our brothers and sisters in the one who promises to hold us up. You know, Kyle was talking to me earlier this week. This is one of the reasons why he says he loves to proclaim the creed because I stand with my brothers and my sisters and their faith and the faithfulness of God is what holds me in faith. Many of you remember when Jamie moved and she shared her testimony with us after losing her husband, after having a two-month-old baby, that week after week when she felt weak in her faith and so many of us have felt that way, to come together and to be held in faith by our brothers, by our sisters, and by our God is why we come together each week and proclaim, I believe. Because our God is worthy of belief. Like children clinging to our Father in heaven, he promises to never let us go. First, the reason why we proclaim the creed week in and week out is the centrality of belief. But second, I want to point out It's also important to proclaim the creed week in and week out. It plays a role in our liturgy because it gives us the big picture of our faith. It gives us the sweeping narrative of what scripture is all about. Because often in life, we can know a lot of details about a story and miss what it's all about, can't we? I have a comical illustration for this. My nephew, my namesake, Benson Timothy, who's a lot like me, he's real naughty and things, and I just, I let him get away with anything. He's my sister's my sister's uh, youngest son. And he apparently went to the local theater uh, to uh, watch The Lion King. And I think particularly because the girl he's interested in is in it, right? And him and his older brother are interested in the same girl. It's this whole problem in the household right now. They're like five and seven. So just to put that in the right context. Anyway, he went to go see The Lion King. He complained about it the whole time. I heard this big rigmarole. It was too loud, yada, yada. And then my sister asked him, Benson, what was The Lion King about? And he kind of looked bashful and sheepish and said, I don't don't want to talk about it. What was The Lion King about, Benson? Well, I think it was about two giraffes that got married. (laughs) 
He saw the play. He didn't see the play, right? Or how many of you have ever seen YouTubes of grandmas that watch Star Wars or the uh, Lord of the Rings and then try to explain Star Wars or Lord of the Rings? Have any of you ever seen those? They're super funny because the grandmas completely get the names wrong. They get the plot wrong. It's hilarious, right? You can see something and you can miss it entirely. And so often, maybe if you remember back to when you were a child, you saw the flannel graph, you knew that there's, you know, Noah, there's an ark, and then there's this Red Sea parting, and then there's Jonah and a whale, and then all of a sudden we're supposed to be loving Jesus, right? And you're like, what do these have to do with each other, <laughs> right? And then you come to Trinity Anglican, and you have a biblical theologian as a pastor, and he says, listen, guys, this is all the same story, Guess what? The ark is all about how God carries his people out of a world of destruction through the flood into a resurrected new creation life. The the parting of the Red Sea is all about taking God's people out of slavery in Egypt, which is hell itself, through a death and resurrection into the promised land. Guess what Jonah is all about? Jesus even tells us, God swallows somebody up, takes them through death, sends them out on mission in resurrected life. And Jesus takes us out of death, through the grave, into resurrected life, and sends us out on mission into the world. And so often, we see all the details, and we miss the big picture. But guess what? You're in good company, because this is exactly what we see on the road to Emmaus. The passage that Kyle read in our gospel reading today, what happens? Right? He comes across these two guys, Clopas, and we don't know the other guy's name. Apparently, they're disciples. They're not one of the 12, but they're nearby, right? And they're all moody and broody about something. He's like, what's going on, guys? And they don't recognize him. They say, have you not heard? Jesus of Nazareth, we thought he was the Messiah. Turns out he got killed by the Romans, and now his body's gone. And now these ladies that we know and love, they're saying crazy stuff that they saw an angel and that he's gone. And then Jesus appears to them. And he says to them, oh, foolish ones. Think about seeing the risen Lord, and that's the first thing. You know, oh, foolish ones. It's slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And look at this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What do we see? It's one story. It's all leading to one climactic event. God becoming man and redeeming his lost people. And so each week we come together to recite the creed because in the creed we see the big picture of God creating humanity, God redeeming humanity, and God creating a new humanity by his Holy Spirit and the church. And I want to just name one reason why. One reason why having the big picture is so valuable. Yes, it's valuable for us to know our Bibles and, and to understand our Bibles. That's valuable. But knowing the big picture is incredibly valuable because how we understand the big picture of life will, in, will inform how we interpret life. Our big picture understandings of life are the interpretive lenses through which we understand life. Many of you know that one of my favorite philosophers, contemporary philosophers, is a Canadian uh, uh, Catholic philosopher named 
Charles Taylor. And uh, I thought I had owned all of Taylor's books until Amazon realized that I didn't and told me, you don't own this one. I said, oh yeah, you got me. I got to buy that. It's called Modern Social Imaginaries. And in that, Taylor picks up a common theme that he talks about in almost all of his books. And this is what's called a social imaginary. And a social imaginary is, is the way normal people, people like you and me, not philosophers, not sociologists, normal people imagine the world to exist. It's, it's structures and relationships and hierarchies and, and bonds that unite us at how we interpret the world. And he kind of lists a few. He talks about, you know, the, the market economy is a big one here in the U.S. And I forget the other ones. Uh, oh, the um, public sphere where everything's neutral. But whatever it might be, we have ways of interpreting our world. Big picture narratives that filter what we will call our plausibility structures. Things we say, that could be the case, or that's probably not the case. Think about it like this. Taylor points out market economy, right? That's kind of how many people in our world view life. And therefore, if you view all of life as just a market economy, how do you view relationships? Relationships are fundamentally transactional. In a market economy, relationships are transactional. Therefore, you can make an app called Tinder, and it makes a lot of sense in our fallen world, doesn't it? It's a life of re- transactional relationships where we mutually use one another until we no longer need each other, and then we move on. Sadly, this is often how we treat our relatives. This is how we treat members of our church. This is how we treat one another, how we often treat our spouse. It's a market economy of transaction. Or maybe think about it like this. Um, a pure naturalistic worldview, right? If you have a pure naturalistic worldview, is it within your plausibility structure for the supernatural to occur? Of course not. So any sort of proclamation, I've been healed by God. Well, there's clearly some sort of explanation that can bring about that reality, but it doesn't fit in our plausibility structure for you to actually experience healing because all explanations need to be natural. Well, family, we have a social imaginary. We have a plausibility structure. And it's the big picture narrative of the scriptures that our God created us, that our God chose to love us even when we fell into sin by sending his son to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, to bring us back into life with him. That our God has chosen to bring us into a new kind of people in his one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That he has filled us with his spirit that we might look more and more like our Lord and Savior and less and less like our sinful selves. We have a social imaginary. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. That our God has chosen to save sinful humans. Now, each week we proclaim this in the entirety of our liturgy. That's what this whole sermon series is about. This whole sermon series is about the shape of the liturgy and how the liturgy shapes you. Because the world is shaping you. The world is shaping you. The world is shaping you by its social imaginaries, its plausibility structures, its desires for your life. And therefore, we need all the more to have the true message of salvation in Christ alone be the shaping mechanism of the church to form us into the image of Christ. But in case you miss it, and all the other parts of the liturgy, 
in case you don't notice it, that God wants to talk to you. And that's why he speaks to you by his word and invites you to speak back. That God wants to forgive you, so he invites you to confess your sins and we offer absolution. That God wants to have a meal for you. That's why we have Eucharist every week. That God wants to celebrate with you. That's why we have joyful worship. In case you miss all of that, we also proclaim the creed every week to say this is our story. This is our big picture social imaginary that forms us into a kind of people, a people of redemption, of Christ in him alone. First, we need the creed because of the centrality of belief. Second, we need the creed because it gives us the big picture. And third, and quickly, we need the creed because it unites. You know, we often forget as Protestants that John 17, 20 through 21 is actually in the Bible. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The heart of Christ is for unity in his church. The heart of Christ is that we would be a people united together in the gospel of Jesus Christ, united together in the love that he shares with the Father, united together in this great life that we have being filled with the Spirit, that we might be one. And the beauties of, of the creed is that the creeds unite us. You know, our brethren in the Baptist church, we love them, but we don't agree on when and how you should baptize someone. We do it a bit early for their taste, and we don't often use enough water. Although at Trinity Anglican, we dunk those babies. So we do at least get that. We meet them halfway on that. Now, but we can stand together and recite the creed and have zero disagreement on it. You know, our Roman Catholic brethren, I, you know me, I vehemently, let me rephrase this clearly, vehemently disagree with the sacerdotal system, which means, you know, I, I disagree with their understanding of the interplay between faith and works. I'm firmly committed that it's all grace and that actually when we affirm that it's all grace, it actually leads us into good works. It's actually a better motivator to, for good works, not fear. I vehemently disagree on that piece, but we can stand shoulder to shoulder and recite the creeds together. Now, there is a sticky thing called the filioque clause, and I'm not quite sure how we get that out of the way with the Eastern Orthodox, but we agree on the Apostles' Creed, okay? We do agree on the Apostles' Creed there. And so whether or not you are standing and reciting the creed here in Littleton, Colorado, Lanny was talking to me the other day about when he was discipling uh, illiterate tribes in Africa that what he would teach them is the Apostles' Creed. That was what would prepare them for baptism. Even to this day, there are people that this is what prepares you for baptism. We might have differences of political belief. We might be in different denominations. We might be in different parts of the world. We might even be in different parts of history. But we have one story that unites us. The story of God choosing to redeem his lost people by his son, Jesus Christ. And I wonder if one of the things that we need to be proclaiming to the world, showing to the world, is a greater posture of unity that happens through creedal faith. Which I want to make just one last point, because I got two minutes. 
The creed also unites us in unity across time. You know, right now, one of the major temptations of the church is to be a hot take church. And y'all know, if you get around me and my buddies, around like a beer and a campfire, I love hot takes. Because I don't really mean them, right? And you're just saying stuff. And you're just, here's my opinion on this right now, right? And guess what? That is absolutely infiltrated pulpits all over the world. I have to respond to this issue. I have to respond to that issue. And sometimes there are issues that are so grievous, every church ought to respond to them or are so near the hearts of the people of that church that they have to respond to them, right? Our church works with refugees from Afghanistan. The past month has actually touched us. It's not theoretical. We know people. Okay, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is the creeds help anchor us in the truth that we all hold on to that transcends time. And that helps anchor us so that we don't get sucked into the ever-present grasping at our attention, our time, and our focus as the church. We are fundamentally first and foremost a people who believe in reconciliation with God by the power of Jesus Christ. That has been the truth that we have proclaimed as a church for 2,000 years. That is a truth that we will proclaim as Trinity Anglican for as long as the Lord keeps us here. The creeds also anchor us in the timeless truths of our faith and help us frame the issues that we have today that the church ought to address but can't be perpetually drawn into again and again so that we might keep our focus on salvation in Christ and Him alone. The creeds unite us, not only across space, but also across time. Why do we recite the creeds? We recite the creeds to bolster us in faith. We recite the creeds to give us the big picture so that we can interpret the world clearly through the gospel. And we recite the creeds to unite us as a common church. And now, family, I thought it would be fitting that we stand together and proclaim the Nicene Creed together. Gavin, stand up with me. Gavin, would you put that up for me? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. 
We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.